This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Good morning, good morning. Professor Wardscott in the Mandalay Warthog Man Cave in the piney woods of North Central Florida, God's country. A little bit nippy. We'll go into that at the bottom of the hour. But we got a great show for you today. We're, out, of course, in the Melvin Law studio. Melvin Law is the only official law firm partner of the University of Florida Fighting Gator. And we're protected 24 7, 365 by crime prevention and sponsored by all the great sponsors you see scrolling by our screen. Patronize them, they patronized us. They built those businesses from scratch. Well, Don Brenner Bailey, always first to class. Good morning, sir. We got a great show today. Something I've been thinking about doing for quite a while. You know, I was a professor, as you know, at Santa Fe College. Really, I was one of the first ones on the ground floor of the college. Came there in 1969 and retired. Oh, I've lost track of fingers and toes. Mm. I don't know how many kids I influenced, how many I taught, and how many good people I was around. I always tried to get to be buddy-buddies with the really great teachers and learn from them. And the one I'm going to show you today, Stuart McRae, was an anthropologist, and he was Teacher of the Year in the state of Florida. Um, Really good friend, great teacher. And I used to team teach everyone. Uh, every once in a while, with the great teachers. And by that I mean, we'd pick a subject, they would teach it from their discipline, I would teach it from the point of view of mine, and we would hold it in the television studio, and Bob Leitner would record it, and we'd have it in perpetuity. That's how we got to get this one. This is a class, an actual class. I think it's in the 90s, early 90s, you, if you can find a young Ward Scott in there, there he's in there. Um, <clears throat> so we have this class. It lasts an hour and a half. And we, as I say, we record it so I can show it to future classes or share it among the other professors at the college. Now, <clears throat> I built a library of these people. And eventually I want to show you some of the others that I had. But I was thinking about this today. You know, maybe they would like to see this. It is absolutely on the cutting edge of thinking. And and these students have never thought the way they're going to think today. And you'll watch them. Gradually, they come to life. We let them talk, ask questions. And gradually, they warm up. And gradually they grow right before your eyes. Today, 
The subject is <clears throat> subsistence-based anthropology. Now, that is a term, subsistence-based, that anthropologists use to determine how their food-gathering resources and processes work, how many people that system will support. And you're going to see a development in man's urbanization as he changes his use of the land. As he goes from hunter and gatherer to urbanite, you'll see him change. Everything changes. Definitions of institutions, politics, everything. So we take an hour and a half and go through this. It is a, a wonderful class. It's one I don't miss, um, um, don't want you to miss at some point. And I have another one, which if I can dig out of the world's dusty library somewhere, it will be H.T. Odom, who started the environmental department at the University of Florida sometime in the 70s or the 80s. So he was a very good friend as well. So once I had the respect of these teachers, that alone was enough for me to learn. If I had them respecting me, wanting to come to my class, talk and trust, that was a big deal. I didn't pay them. We just shared information, shared points of view. So what I want to do today is, this is on recorded, and uh, we're going to play it. I'll just sit back and watch it. The bottom of the hour, I'll do the weather. And I, th- I think uh, if you have any questions, you can put them in the chat line, and I will see them. And then I can feed that question to you with an answer, hopefully, at the bottom of the hour. So on subsistence base anthropology. I remember it. It was a wonderful, delightful afternoon. A game changer for the students. Hopefully, will be that way for you because you're a game changer. You're a student and you're never too old to hear these discussions. I think we're ready, Zach. Please play. Okay, I'm Stuart McRae. I uh, started the first anthropology course here back in, uh, um, was it 1861 or 1961? Anyway, about 25 years ago, uh, I was at the University of Florida, as Ward was formerly, and at Florida Southern before that. Most of my education was at Duke University and LaGrange College, although I did get a degree or two from Florida. Uh, Santa Fe is my institution. I love this place because two things that I really enjoy are training racehorses and teaching anthropology. And they allow me to teach here with just a, a full spectrum of, of support and, and kind of a wide open position. I'm also chairman of the department since I started it. Um, so um, I'm going to start right in and give you uh, a little section of material that we give our anthropology students that I think will fit in with your writing. And by the way, I want to give Ward a kudo for doing this because not only is he teaching your writing, but he's taking subject matter that is very, very timely and letting you develop the skills on material that's, that's quite timely and quite relevant. Um, 
there is a category in anthropology called subsistence base. And when anthropologists study societies, they look at the subsistence base of the culture because the subsistence base means how people extract enough energy from the environment to subsist. <clears throat> and if you're interested in that, uh, <clears throat> the relationship toward the land, how they extract that material is crucial to the rest of their society. The major form in which they extract material has to do with food getting. Now, let me talk about how some societies do this. The oldest type of subsistence base that we've had for a million and a half years. I'm not sure if you've had anthropology or what your understanding of the evolution of hominids is, but we have a complete skeleton. We have skeletons that run back three and four million years, pieces of them, but we have a complete skeleton of Homo erectus, a million and a half years old. Homo erectus was the very first human being. Fire, language, culture, a hunter and gatherer a million and a half years ago. So our first subsistence base is hunting and gathering. And if, did any of you see the movie The Gods Must Be Crazy? Okay, those are Kung San Bushmen who are some of the few surviving hunters and gatherers today. The subsistence base that man has had for 99% of his time on the planet is in fact hunting and gathering. Now, what is a hunting and gathering culture like? First of all, hunting and gathering can only support a very small population. Rarely more than 20 to 50, okay? Their um, territory is very ill-defined. Territory not very important. It's the animals that move across it that are real important. So you can shoot an animal in one band's territory. If it goes into the other one, you can go and get it. You simply give the headman a hindquarter. So that the land itself, the territory itself, is not very important. Uh, only the stuff that grows on it is important. Uh, these societies are egalitarian. The statuses of males and females are fairly equal. And there has never been um, a trade among the Bushmen like we had in America when the buffalo were here and people shot them for sport or shot them for the tongues or shot them for the hides and left the meat rotting. A built-in sense of ecology is part of the culture of the Bushmen. They only take certain animals, they only take them certain times of the year, and um, if an individual kills an outstanding specimen, this is real crucial, if an individual kills an outstanding specimen, they never say, great job, good kill, oh my God, look at the size of this wildebeest, that's terrific. They never comment on it, and the reason for this is, what will happen if they do? Status, position, will accrue from killing an outstanding animal. So then somebody else will want to kill one, okay? And pretty soon, you're killing off your animals, you're depleting your resources, you're ruining your subsistence base, okay? Now, we were, in fact, hunters and gatherers for 99% um, of our time on the planet, say 1.5 million. Okay, and during this time, culture changed very little. They were egalitarian, they were semi-nomadic, they moved from place to place. 
Uh, water holes were very important, and each headman owned the water hole for the band. But if you were from another band, you could freely share the water hole. All you had to do was ask. Water holes were never refused. Requests were never refused. All you had to do was ask. But if you didn't ask, what would it lead to? I drink here today. I drink here tomorrow. I drink here Wednesday. I drink here Friday. Hell, this is my water hole. Right? What are we getting to? Establishment and possession of the land. All right? Fighting over it for status again. They don't do any of this. All right? Their attitude towards the land, which shapes their culture, is crucial. And that's one of the things you guys are looking at. A um, couple of other things about the Bushmen. They have no real, no real uh, political power. They are organized at the stage of the band, which means it's a collection of families. There is a headman, <clears throat> and this is important. There is a headman who is a leader, but he's not a ruler. He cannot tell anybody what to do. Okay? He leads by mutual reciprocity, giving things away, some of his extra meat, and calling in the favors later. Uh, by his own charisma, his ability to organize, by the fact that he might be a good hunter. And by the way, uh, the division of labor is important here, too. Okay, the division of labor is important here, too. Uh, <coughs> men hunt cooperatively for the band, the whole group, say 20 to 50. Women gather only for their own families. Now, this kind of shapes the sex roles for the next million or so years, whereas women are recognized for their individual efforts. But men are recognized for their group efforts and their ability to cooperate to feed the larger band. You can see again how they go about getting their food, sets up their sex roles, their division of labor, and what men and women do. Here again, how you exploit the land, and very important in terms of determining your whole society. Now, about 5,000 years ago, in the ancient Near East, plant and animal domestication took place, and then we've got a problem. Okay? We've got a real problem. Because once we can domesticate food, the land becomes important, right? It can provide, and we know how to make it produce. So um, we find that the first subsistence base after the domestication of plants and animals is, in fact, called simple horticulture. Simple horticulture. Now, I'm going to make a difference between horticulture and agriculture because... Horticulture involves only human energy, okay? Only human energy. The digging stick, the chopping tool, later on the machete that the Yanomamo today use. Simple horticulture. Village size expands. expands. Here we've got 20 to 50, okay, in terms of population. Simple horticulture, a couple hundred becomes common, right? But they're still basically egalitarian. They have a headman who's a leader, can't tell anybody what to do. They have a shaman who is the spiritual healer, and all of the statuses are pretty much the same. However, their attitude towards the land changes. Now we get them developing gardens. By the way, horticulture is more of a gardening society than a farming society. Good way to remember it. In which they have garden plots. And so now we're seeing that the orientation of the land becomes important. Um, Certain areas of the land are important because of what they grow. 
Even the Yanomamo Indians today grow their own tobacco. And people run out of tobacco. The Yanomamo are addicted to tobacco from about the age of three, according to researchers. Uh, they don't smoke it like we do. What they do is they dry it, and then they take the ashes from a fire, rub it on the leaf like this, because it breaks down the alkaloids. Then they roll it up and put it in the lip like this. <laughs> it goes all over it. Their lips protrude uh, with this big green wad in there, but everybody has it. It's kind of normal. However, when people go from other cultures to see them, they find this rather repulsive. And then when they find out they take it and pass it around, they find it even more repulsive. But what, one of the things that as soon as specialty items are grown like tobacco, the Yanomamo will stake out their tobacco patch, okay, and put little magical warnings around there. What they're beginning to do is to say, this is my land. This is my tobacco. Stay away from here, okay? You don't have that. In, in Bushmen, right? But we're beginning to get it with the domestication of plants and animals when man becomes sedentary, is no longer semi-nomadic, no longer wanders around. Then we get a process called intensification at the third stage. And in the third stage with intensification, we go from simple horticulture to advanced horticulture. Now, in advanced horticulture, watch how things change. Your population, no longer a couple of hundred, but thousands up to millions. Okay? Now, we're still in horticulture. We're still using only human energy. How in the world do these people feed themselves with just a digging stick and a machete with the typical slash and burn uh, techniques? Well, they don't. Intensification means extending or increasing your food supply, your yield, without extending your boundaries. In other words, getting a lot more food off of the same land. Uh, one of the groups that I work with in, in Central America, Guatemala and Belize particularly, are the Maya. And we're just uncovering some of the new Maya stuff that I think is going to show in a few years that their, their, their society was much more complex than the Romans at the same time. We found two cities in Belize which had more than 100,000 people in them. Caracol, which was only found about five years ago, we started to excavate it only three years ago, um, had over 200,000 people. You can't support 200,000 people on simple horticulture. What did they do? We're just uncovering some new stuff. Uh, particularly at a place called Pool Trouser Swamp in Belize, in which what they would do was to come in and to dig canals like this, and then to float the canals with something like water hyacinths or water lilies, which grow very fast. And then they discovered two species of fish, which they put into the water. The fish, most fish are carnivorous. You know that? Fish eat other fish. Not these two species. They eat herbiferous material, vegetable material. They nibble on the bottom of the water lilies, okay? In the meantime, they have raised beds here. Raised beds, which in fact were fertilized organically by taking rakes and scooping out many of the water lilies and piling them on the corn, the beans, and the squash. So that as they broke down, you had this organic fertilizer going into the soil. What did they do? They soon produced much more food than they needed. 
Therefore, they begin to build civilization because as soon as you get intensification, as soon as you produce an economic surplus, you invariably get social stratification. And the upper classes who own most of the land control the food supply. And so they had to impose a labor tax. In order for you to get your food, you had to do a number of things for them. Number one, you had to build temples, you had to build roadways, and you had to serve in the military. Okay? So we've got an economic surplus owned by a few people. We've got political power. <coughs> and pretty soon, the people who had the political power began to take their armies and raid others to get even more stuff, which they couldn't possibly consume, to add to social status. By the time we get into the classic period between 600 and 900 in, uh, in Tikal, in Guatemala, cores of the little lake nearby show that for 500 years the place has been deforested. They have ruined it for food. Right? They didn't need all of this. What they wanted to do was to build a higher political, socioeconomic structure uh, so that they could control more and more power and more and more cities. Um, as soon as you begin to extract more and more food from the land, exploit the land, it invariably leads to political power. Okay? Now, from uh, advanced horticulture and the earliest of civilizations like the Maya in Guatemala and Belize, the Inca in Peru, by the way, the Inca attitude towards the land was just incredible. They were also advanced horticulturalists. 30% of the Inca territory freezes 300 days out of the year at night. Okay? If you had to grow crops, just think of this now. If you had to grow crops and it froze 300 nights out of the 365, how in the world would you do it? Okay? The Inca did it. And they did it by, by selective breeding, by patience. They domesticated the potato, right? Uh, the potatoes I grow, once the, once the freeze comes, they won't grow, right? They freeze off the tops, they won't grow. The Inca somehow developed potatoes that would grow in a freeze. Then when you get the potatoes, what they would do is, since they were so high in the Andean mountains, they would take the potatoes, squash the insides out, okay, and put them on a big sheet. The sun, you're up 15, 18,000 feet, almost equatorial, the sun in the day would heat them. The frost at night would freeze them. In about 30 days, you've got freeze-dried potatoes that will last more than a year. And they had storehouses all through the kingdom. Every, it says half a league, which a league is 2.4 miles to 4.6. Every half a league, they had a storehouse. Okay? So they were able to, to go into an environment that was basically hostile. Not conquer it, but learn how to develop it and how to use it. They also did 300 different varieties of corn. Right? Now, corn doesn't grow well in the mountains. The Inca developed corn that would grow at a different elevation. They had over 300 species, and each one grew at a different elevation. Sometimes the cobs were very short, but the corn was very sweet, because when it's that high up and it's that cold, that's all the fruit it's going to put out. So the idea of not conquering the land, but using it, even in a hostile, harsh environment, uh, the Maya did the same thing. A third of their land was swamp. Uh, we generally come in and clean it out and change the swamp. They learned how to use the swamp by draining the water into canals, growing, growing the vegetation that grew there naturally, and fertilizing the other vegetation. So you've got an attitude toward the land here where instead of coming in and saying, this situation won't grow what we need, let's just clear it all out, okay, and changing the ecology, they would come in, 
observe as good scientists do, right? Primitives can do this and learn how to grow the natural plants and to manipulate that which is already growing there into other species. You've got two great examples here of societies, the earliest great civilizations, where the environment was not conducive at all. And yet you don't have hungry people wandering about the mountains, frozen uh, and hungry. You've got enormous empires with great political organizations and kingdoms because they learn how to use the environment. Um, number four, when we're really going to get into... Uh, to what we're dealing with today at number four, because in comes agriculture. Now, agriculture comes in about 3,500 years ago, BPs before the present. And interestingly enough, <coughs> agriculture means uh, the use of other than human energy. Okay, we've got things like sophisticated irrigation systems, hydraulic agriculture in Egypt. All right. We've got uh, the plow animal, the draft animal. We've got wind power, drawing water up and circulating it around uh, for irrigation. And once you get in with agriculture, uh, you also have a new tool, and that's the plow, because you've got the draft animal. And with the, with the addition of the, of the draft animal to the plow, you can turn the soil down very, very, very deep. In some heavy clay soils where you couldn't dig with a digging stick before, you can take a 2,000-pound draft horse and turn and a metal plow and turn that soil all the way down. Now, the advantage of this is that you can expand the area where you're growing food, and you can produce more intensification. Remember what I said intensification was? Increasing your yield without extending your boundaries. When you turn that soil down 12 or 14 inches and loosen it that far, what you do is you make it soft enough that five basic stages to a plant. The first is germination. The second is the primary vegetative stage. That's where the seedling starts putting out roots for a root ball and starts to develop a stem and leaves. Now, if that soil is soft down for a foot, those little roots are going to run like crazy. There's not much resistance against them. Pick up nutrition, pick up more roots. So by the time the plant starts to grow, you've got this enormous root ball down there that can feed the plant, and you get a much bigger a much more productive, a higher yielding plant from the use of the plow. So again, we increase our food supply, okay? Increase our food supply significantly so that uh, cultures with millions of them <coughs> become common. And not only millions, but in some cases, hundreds of millions. Now, with agriculture, uh, we get an enormous economic surplus. enormous economic surplus. And of course, the things that we see, the kind of seeds of civilization we see here, become expanded here. And we have enormous social classes. We have kings and monarchs and pharaohs, and we have government officials who work for them and have extremely high status. We have a merchant class for the first time. Because with this economic surplus, what happens is um, a few people make, make all of the goods and they can make the goods for all of the society since everybody's freed from the, from the food process, and they begin to trade them. And those who can say, well, okay, everybody's got pottery in here. How many pots do we have left over? I'll take them all, right? Make me a good price. And that's where your trading begins. And he'll take all of his pots and take them over to Baghdad, and he'll trade them for blankets, take the blankets back to, uh, to Jerusalem, sell those, um, and make enormous profits. So you have a merchant class and enormous profits and great wealth arising for the first time at the agricultural stage. Then after that, you have priests coming in for the first time. 
Remember in the, uh, among the, uh, shame, among the uh, hunters and gatherers and the simple horticulturalists, the only spiritual leader is the shaman, and all he does is heal when people are sick through acquisition of spirits. But by the time we get here, we have temples, enormous monumental public works, and most of the economic surplus is stored inside the temples. The priests, for instance, were the very first to develop a mathematical system to keep up with all of this kind of stuff. So you get full-time priests who don't do anything but maintain the temples, maintain the mythologizing um, institutions of the culture. And then you also get artisans and craftsmen who only produce things. Artifacts become produced in an enormous number, and you can see how this works. Hunting and gathering, everybody involved in a food quest. Simple horticulture, everybody involved in a food quest. Advanced uh, horticulture, 90% of the people are involved in the food quest. Agriculture, only 25% of the people are involved in a food quest. Now, if only 25% of a society is in charge of the food, let's say, one, two, three, four, you guys right here, the rest of y'all don't have to do anything, right? They're going to make the food for everybody. Of course, they're not going to give it to you. Right? You've got to give them something back. So you start a mill and grind all the grain. You take that grain once he's ground it, and you bake the bread, and you sell all the bread. You take the cloth, right? And you take the thread, and you make it into cloth. You and your husband, ah, you're metal workers, right? You make the spear points, and you make the uh, knives, and you make the wagon wheels, and you make everything metal uh, that everybody uses. Uh, you make the pottery. Right on down, right? What do we got? Specialization, all right? Different people are making different artifacts. The artifacts of the culture increase enormously. Trade increases, and all of a sudden, we've got wealth and civilization here. Now, let's look at one other, and very exploitive, too. The land is seen as that which will produce wealth, which will produce status, which will produce power. Dangerous attitude. Number five is a different kind of culture, but it comes along about the same time. Plants and animals were domesticated at about the same time, but animals as a specialized way of life come a little bit later. And this form of specialized way of life is called pastoralism. Okay, pastoralism. Pastoralism is often called herding societies. All right. Welcome back live now. Ward Scott Files, your professor here for today's class, and it really is a class. This is my good buddy, Stuart McRae. Unfortunately, he's now passed. He's a great teacher, great friend, and we team-taught this course one afternoon in the television studio at Santa Fe to help the kids understand how things are today and where they came from and how they got there. I think we need to do a lot more in this culture. Um, and then we do, but I do my little part here. Now I'm putting it out there for you to see. We'll take a break for the weather. I will come back. I'll look at the chat line, see if there's any questions. No questions. We'll run the rest of it up until about the end. And I think it will take another 15 minutes or so of the next class. So we will skip that, provided uh, Ted Yellow is with us tomorrow, and we'll finish it off on Thursday. So we'll be right back. We'll take a break. We'll come back for Ward's weather on the Ward Scott Files. Stay tuned.
Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, RR Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Ward Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All bees poop. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, thanks. Help me! Help! Help! Welcome back to Ward's Weather. Brought to you by Lewis Oil, Chevron Fossil Fuel. And we are going to inform you that we have a mild day today in Piney Woods in North Central Florida, somewhere in the 60s to the 70s. And we didn't get the big rain we thought we were going to get, but we did get some rain. That helped out. And now we're expecting cold a little bit later on. After all, it is still February. Now we are also uh, enjoying yet another discovery. These things always intrigue me. I don't know why. You know, I always joke that the population of the city of Gainesville came from a UFO landing by the Lincoln Stupids in about 1947. I'll be darned if the astronomers on CNN, that will make you suspicious, haven't discovered a super-Earth, a world larger than our planet, orbiting our star about 137 light-years away. Now, I don't know whether that's a long way or down the street. And why are they just now discovering it? I don't get it. I mean, come on. It's second planet. 
all could be thought to be the size of Earth, may also be orbiting the same star. You mean there's more? The super Earth exoplanet, known as TO1715b, orbits a red dwarf star that is cooler and smaller than our Sun. Now, astronomers spotted the planet using NASA's tests for transitioning exoplanet survey satellite mission. This study detailed this discovery was published in January in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. Well, well, there you go. It looks as if the size of the planet is one and a half times as wide as our planet and uh, takes 19 days to complete the orbit around its star. Well, 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 what can I tell you? Um, maybe that's where it all came from. Maybe that's where it all started. Maybe that's where it all go back to. Well, if you're just tuning in, we're watching Stuart McRae, who was Teacher of the Year in the state of Florida. He was an anthropology professor, good friend of mine, dynamic teacher. Kids loved him. And he and I team taught this afternoon. And I'm showing you this. In the in probably early 90s, <clears throat> It was a very important approach. And this is an English class. I get this. This is English. This is not anthropology. This is English. But they're going to write about this. They're going to write about man's relationship to the land and how that results in the construction of all these institutions. And we've been watching this on the political scene here on the word Scottville. As we move into cities, would become radically different from the rule of the country until the two are not even alike. So this is not new. This is the way it works or doesn't work. So <clears throat> sit back and enjoy the rest of this. And we'll show up until about 9.55. Then hopefully we'll have Ted Yolo with us tomorrow. And on Thursday, we'll come back and complete this because it's very very interesting. All right, Zach, take it away, my man. <clears throat> okay. Uh, these people herd animals as a way of life. Um, there are numerous pastoral societies in the world. As a matter of fact, the biggest collection of pastoralists is in Africa. If you start around Khartoum in the Sudan and run all the way south into South Africa, going through Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, uh, you got 2,200 miles of what is called the East African Cattle Complex. And these people's uh, uh, whole way of life is built around herding. They also have some sheep and goats, but cattle are primarily uh, what it's all about. Groups like the New Air, the Turkana, the Baraba Ag, the Maasai, uh, very well-known people. All of them are Zulu, are, are, are uh, cattle keepers. Now, things change when your whole society is built on keeping of animals. Your attitude towards the land also changes. It is very non-exploitive. Um, first of all, your population is going to change. It's always gone up in the first four that we looked at. But here, in fact, it's going to go back down from 10,000 up to hundreds of thousands, but no more. The Navajo and the American Southwest are pastless, but there, there are only 700,000 of them. Uh, uh, that's about as many as you can have with the keeping of animals, because the major problem with a pastoral society and its relationship to the land is grazing. Uh, 
The pastoralist is concerned with two major ideas. How can I find grazing land for my stock and how can I protect them? Okay, these both go together. For instance, uh, there is something among pastoralists called transhumans. Transhumans is a semi-annual migration for grazing land twice a year, which means that your whole culture is going to be covered by this. You're going to spend six months of the year, four to five to six months, and the same thing here, in two different basic areas. The new air, every year, as soon as the rainy season starts, they take everybody who can walk, right? all their cattle, all their portable goods, and they go about 50 to 100 miles making only five or six miles a day because they got these herds to go by to find new grazing rights, okay? It's a semi-annual migration. What happens while they're going overland with their wives and their children and their cattle and their earthly possessions? Huh? Well, they can't take much, but they're taking everything they have. That's the key. They are also semi-nomadic, but they have a different kind of semi-nomadism from hunters and gatherers. It's only twice a year. They're going to go 50, 60 miles, right? What are they going to run into? Yes. And the other people are going to want their wives. They're going to want their cattle. They're going to want their earthly possessions, right? So pastoralism, having chosen this way of food extraction, produces a particular kind of culture. In pre-industrial warfare, pastoral societies were the most aggressive, the most male-dominated with the highest possible status for males because males owned the animals, which were the main source of wealth, okay? Females had very low status as a matter of fact. And they are the most aggressive peoples of all kind. Where we're talking about Genghis Khan, right? Um, I remember when Genghis Khan, uh, I remember when in my history class, and my first degree was in American history, and we were studying world civilizations under Weston Murray at Duke University. And uh, it was a three to five, it was Tuesday and Thursday, three o'clock to five o'clock. Yeah, bedtime. Uh, and after four o'clock, all of us were just hanging on, because Murray was a great historian, but a very conservative lecturer. And uh, <laughs> he always wore the same thing. His wife bought him six blue suits, 12 white shirts, three blue ties, a dozen pair of blue socks, two pairs of wingtip cordovans, and two black belts. That way, Dr. Murray could only think about ideas. He didn't have to worry about what he wore. So he would come in a vest. The suits were all three-piece. So he would come, and he would do the question-and-answer method. He would ask you questions, and you answered them, and sometimes you didn't know the answer, and it went around the room, that type of thing. And the class was okay. It was never very inspiring. Then one day, Weston Murray began to talk about Genghis Khan. And he, his hand began to quiver. His lip began to tremble. And I said to my roommate, who was beside me asleep, Mike, something's coming. And... Uh, Weston Murray talked about Genghis Khan and how Genghis Khan organized the Mongol hordes and how these guys were on horseback and how they came and they went into uh, Uzbekistan and they laid, and I remember when he said, and they laid waste to Samarkand. Now, I'd never seen Weston Murray get excited before. And they laid waste to Samarkand. And I went, wow. 22 years later, I get a chance to do field work in Russia. I get to go into the Mongolian republics. I go to Uzbekistan. I've got to see Samarkand. I still remember this lecture. I got to modern-day Samarkand, which wasn't a whole lot to look at. I got in a cab, said to the guy, I want to go to the old city. He said, but the old city is devastated. I said, that's what I want to see, devastation. So he drives me out in the desert. And we get out there, and there is a city which covered, I don't know, five or six square acres. 
and there's not a piece of mortar, not a single brick, not a single wall any higher than this, right? Because Genghis Khan, a pastoralist on horseback, no cannon, no tanks, no guns, no fire, men on horseback, laid this city to waste, right? This is the kind of culture you have when you have pastoralism, right? When they have to move like this, they have to defend their cattle. So it selects for a physically and psychologically very aggressive individual. That's why when you choose to extract environment through animals, extract your subsistence base through animals in the environment, it makes a particular kind of culture, and it selects for a particular kind of person. These things are all very basic, and nowhere is it more apparent than in pastoralism. All right? The Bosques in Spain do the same thing. Uh, they're still blowing up stations over there. Uh, one of the problems the Russians had in Afghanistan was Afghanistan was like Uzbekistan. It's a group of a lot of small pastoralists who are very aggressive, very male-dominated. And so the Russians had a time over there. The only reason that the Afghanis couldn't throw them out was that they weren't organized on a big enough, uh, big enough level. All these small villages were used to fighting with each other. Uh, pastoralism, totally different way of life, approaches the land totally differently, but produces a distinctive society from it. Um, the last one is what we have, and I shouldn't have to talk much about industrialism. Uh, when did the Industrial Revolution come in? Hmm? I'm sorry. No, before that, it's about 200 years old, about 1750 in England, right? And when that came in, it changed things again. Uh, because in industrialism, say we'll use the U.S. for an example, how many people are now involved in the food quest? It's hypothetically America. You were hypothetically the Yanomamo if I go, or the Maya. Right? I mean, it's not 25%, but how much? 2%. Yeah, 2%. Yeah, exactly. Only you, part-time. <laughs> okay? Uh, you crank that tractor up, and uh, it's air-conditioned, put your headphones on, and uh, the sprayer will come tomorrow. You know, and just you, part-time. You're going to produce enough food for everybody, right? Now, what does that mean? Remember, just like before, he's not going to give his food to you. Okay? How are you going to get it? You're going to specialize. You're going to produce artifacts, uh, services, uh, all kind of material goods, and they'll be traded back and forth. And when that happens, with all of you people producing stuff, we're going to get a lot of stuff. We're going to get an economic surplus that's never been seen before in the history of the world. How do we get at the economic surplus of the, of the United States? To say what is surplus and what is not being used presently is just, you can't fathom it, but I'll, I'll start and give you just a hint. We can start with the GNP, the Gross National Product of the United States. The Gross National Product of the United States is all of the services and all of the goods produced in one year, one fiscal year, one money year. Do you know how big that is? Anybody know what the GNP of the United States is in terms of dollars? And by the way, it is so big, this is an estimate. It's so big that the next competing country is less than half of that. Three trillion a year. Okay? Now that's a lot of economic surplus. What's going to happen to it? It's going to get unevenly distributed. Okay? And we're going to have so much of that that we're going to get, uh, we're going to get this idea that the Bushmen, in their attitude toward the land, try to resist. We're going to suck it in. We're going to buy things for social status. Who pointed that out to us, first of all? Anybody know? In a book called The Theory of the Leisure Class? Any of you had sociology? man by the name of Thorsten Veblen. 
And in the, in the book Theory of the Leisure Class, Thorsten Veblen proposed a term he called conspicuous consumption. Conspicuous consumption, he proposed, was an idea that was new to the world. That consuming, not because you were hungry, consuming, not because you were cold, consuming, not because you needed to get from point A to point B, but satisfying all those needs in terms of social status, okay, is conspicuous consumption. You consume, you buy for social status. It's a new way of looking at consumption and of purchasing and of the use of artifacts. Fur coats are a great example. I was at the Hilton the other night having dinner. It was pretty warm. A woman came in carrying her fur coat. Then she put it on once she got to the air conditioning to go into dinner. Okay? I thought if that woman wanted to keep herself warm, the fur would be on the inside. Right? But it's on the outside. Kind of like automobiles. I was walking in from the faculty parking lot this morning. One of our brethren has a Jaguar. Um, not you, is no, anyway. uh, <clears throat> I thought, boy, <clears throat> you know, to get to cut, I'm driving a pickup truck. Right? So here I am in the parking lot. Pickup truck works great. Works, you carry stuff in it, great stereo, air conditioning. Um, it's got 150,000 miles, probably go 150,000 more. Good, good vehicle. No status, though. Right. People don't sit in the parking lot and say, God, here comes McCray in his pickup. <laughs> but if I rolled in with that Jaguar talking on the telephone, they'd say, wow. Right? Does the same thing. A vehicle that has four wheels, a fossil fuel engine, and goes from place to place. But one costs about $60,000, and the other costs fourteen. Does the same job, but one carries a whole lot more what? Status. Consuming for status. Okay? We've got so many goods that we consume for status. The economic surplus of this country is just absolutely unbelievable. If you would also have some idea of how to, uh, of how to, to view it, you go out to the Oaks Mall. And that's a fairly small mall. I was in Atlanta two weeks ago. There's, there are malls there that you can put the Oaks Mall in and, 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 and never know it was there. Okay? But if you walked into the Oaks Mall, there is millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of food, goods, uh, tools, technology, cameras, all this kind of stuff. There's nobody's using. They're just there in case you might want to buy one. Okay? That's economic surplus. And how many Oaks Malls are there in the United States? Right? See what I mean by economic surplus? Right? So once we get into this kind of subsistence base, it produces so many artifacts that it changes the whole way we look at artifacts and at the land. Right? Now let me talk about a couple of concepts in this, created by this crisis, that I think you can use in your work. First of all, I want to talk about the difference between the space, the cowboy economy... and the spaceman economy. The cowboy economy is essentially what the United States has had for the last 200 years. It's based on the West, the whole idea that there's a lot of land here and we can just use the resources <clears throat> and keep expanding, okay? Um, um, Davy Crockett or Paul Bunyan or one of these early Americans, I can't remember from my history book, it was so long ago when I was in school, but I remember reading a story where he would come in, clear all the trees out, farm the land, but he felt crowded if at any time he could see the smoke from somebody else's fire, be it several miles away. And he would complain to his wife the neighborhood was getting overcrowded. He would leave everything just like he, just like he, 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 he where he was, 
They would move miles out, cut all these trees down, plant it all over again. Right? That's kind of been our, our method as we pushed west. Right? We have the idea of the cowboy economy. Resources are unlimited. You just, if you use these up, just keep going. There's more out there. Well, we've hit a place, <laughs> the coast of California. We've got to bounce back now. Okay? It's all contained. There is no new land. What we need is to change our attitude toward the land from the cowboy economy, where we just keep pushing westward and there's always new frontiers, to the spaceman economy. A spaceship, when it goes into orbit, has to bring back with it everything that it takes. This is a new idea about how to see the land and how to see the world's resources. From a spaceship, you can't throw anything out the window, okay? And you're not going to have any more than you have in that spaceship. So when you take it, you conserve it, you plan, and you use it accordingly, or else you're out in space without any means of support. The Earth is a lot like a spaceship. The analogy is all too relevant. We're circulating around the solar system self-contained. We can't really throw anything away, although we're putting a lot of trash in the atmosphere from uh, these satellites that go up and we lose them and they stay up there. There's already concern now about space debris, space pollution, okay? If we can somehow shift our attitude from the cowboy economy of the, towards the land, where there's plenty, it renews itself, we just exploit it and keep moving. All right, welcome back now to the Ward Scott Files Live with Ward Scott. Professor Ward Scott, we uh, have been looking at Stuart McRae, team teaching with me, important concepts back in the 90s. We're going to have our guest tomorrow, hopefully, Ted Yoho, and we'll complete our show with Stuart McRae probably on Thursday. I got another guest for you on Friday. So stay tuned whenever you can to the Ward Scott file. Have a great day. Thank you for production for a smooth operation. Bye bye. <laughs>